In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So today we're headed back to Bethany, where Jesus stopped in to see his old friends Mary and Martha and Lazarus before he would enter the city of Jerusalem for that one last time. He loved them, we know. John tells us that, even though John doesn't tell us why he loved them. And maybe that's okay. I like to imagine what the relationship between Lazarus and Mary and Martha and Jesus was. Maybe um, it just doesn't matter. Maybe there's no why to love. They called him Lord, so they knew who he was. Yet, they weren't really his disciples in the more formal sense, you know, like the 12 disciples that followed him everywhere. They were his friends, three people in whom their presence, Jesus could be both man and Messiah. So just days before, Jesus had worked an incredible miracle in their house. He had been across the river when Mary and Martha sent an urgent message to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So he had come to them knowing too well that it was too late. In fact, he even delayed his visit to them. And he was dead, Lazarus so dead that when Jesus stood in front of the tomb, he wept. And then he roared so loud at death that he scared death away. And while the sisters tried to decide whether to run away too, their brother Lazarus came out of the tomb, trailing his shroud behind him, sort of like, I imagine, a butterfly with the cocoon still stuck on. Now Jesus has come back to Bethany with the temple posse close behind. By raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus had set into motion a series of events. Before these people from the temple, the religious leaders, had thought of Jesus more of like a nuisance. But now he became a serious threat. I mean, he was raising people from the dead. And Pilate was not going to ignore these followers of Jesus during the Passover festival. He was so afraid that he was going to stir people up and start an insurrection and take him out of his place of power. So... It was time for Jesus to be dealt with before he leads hundreds to their death. So his days are numbered, and he knows it. And maybe when he arrives at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they can see it on his face that he's worried, or not worried so much, but he's, he's focused on his own last days. So they take him in, they care for him, they feed him, they shut the world out 
for one last night. They all sit down, maybe sharing their hopes and dreams, hiding their fear a little bit. Lazarus sits near his friend, really probably unaware of what had happened and what the rising back to life means for Jesus. In a way, they're trading tombs, aren't they? Lazarus can come back to life, but Jesus will soon be killed and put into a tomb. The recently deceased Lazarus of Bethany is going to outlive the one who brought him back to life. little irony there. And no one notices, perhaps, that Mary has gone away until she comes back holding this clay jar in her hand. And without words, she kneels at Jesus' feet. She breaks the jar open, and the aroma of this nard fills the room. It's a sharp scent halfway between mint and ginseng, and it comes from flowers in the Himalayan mountains of all places. Then as anyone in the room, as everyone watches her there, she does four remarkable things. First, she loosens her hair in a room full of men, which an honorable woman of that day never did. Then she pours perfume on Jesus' feet, which is also not done. One can be anointed on their head, uh, like kings are or priests are, but never on the feet. Then she touches Jesus. Again, a single woman rubbing a single man's feet, also not done, not even among friends. And then finally, she wipes the perfume off with her hair, which is really unexplainable. It's a bizarre end to a series of bizarre actions. Now, most of us might be so moved by the scene that we overlook how bizarre it really is. Um, We imagine, well, that's a gesture of love, and it is. But we also might confuse this account with three others in the Bible, one each from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In the first two, there is an unnamed woman who anoints Jesus' head at the house of Simon the leper during the last week of his life. In the third story, the scene happens at Simon the Pharisee's house much earlier in Jesus' ministry. There Jesus is eating supper when a notorious sinner slips into the room and stands weeping over his feet. She then drops to the ground to cover them and kiss them and rub them with myrrh in the oil. Only in this reading from John does the story give the woman a name, Mary. And only in this account do we know that there is a relationship with Jesus. She's not a stranger. She's not a notorious sinner, but a longtime friend, which makes what she does even more peculiar. He knows that she loves him, and he loves her too. So why this public demonstration, this odd pantomime in front of all of their friends and the disciples, 
It's extravagant to break open all of that oil, and maybe it's excessive. She's gone overboard, and Judas is quick to note that. He says, why wasn't this perfume sold for a lot more money and given to the poor? Jesus, though, brushes him aside. Leave her alone, he says. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor with, her, with you, but you do not always have me. An odd thing to hear from Jesus, who was the champion of the poor, always putting their needs ahead of his. Suddenly, it seems like he's reversing his course. Leave her alone. Leave me alone. Just this once, let her look after me because my time is running out, is perhaps what he's thinking. Whatever Mary thought about what she was doing, and whatever everyone else in the room thought about it, Jesus understood this action as a message from God. This is not the hysterical ministrations of an old maid gone sweetly mad, but rather the carefully performed act of a prophet. Everything around Mary smacked of significance. Judas, the betrayer, challenging her act. The flask of nard, perhaps left over from Lazarus's funeral. And out in the yard, this freshly vacated tomb that still smelled of burial spices waiting for a new occupant. The air was dense with death, and while there may at first have been some doubt as to whose death it was, Mary's prophetic action revealed the truth. She was anointing Jesus' feet for his burial. And while her behavior may may have seemed strange to those standing around, it was no more strange than some of the actions of other prophets in the Old Testament, like Ezekiel, who ate a scroll of the Lord as a sign that he carried the word of the Lord around in him, or Jeremiah smashing a clay jar to show God's judgment on Judah and Jerusalem, or Isaiah walking around naked and barefoot as an oracle against the nations. Prophets need to do odd things, I think, in order to have people notice them and hear what they're saying. They act out. They act out the truth so that no one else can see and those standing around can either write them off as nuts or, find, or fall silent before the truth that they proclaim, especially when the message they proclaim is from God. So when Mary stood before Jesus with that pound of nard in her hand, it might have gone either way. She could have anointed his head and then everyone there could have proclaimed him as king. But she didn't do that. When she moved toward him, she dropped to her knees and instead poured the nard, that perfume, on his feet, which could only mean one thing. The only man who got his feet anointed 
was a dead man, and Jesus knew it. So he said, leave her alone. He said these words so that people would not prevent her from delivering this important message. The message needed to be finished. So Mary rubbed his feet with perfume so precious that its sale might have fed a poor family for a year, an act so lavish that it suggests another layer to her prophecy. There will be nothing economical about this man's death, just as there's been nothing economical about his life. In Jesus, the extravagance of God's love is made flesh. In Jesus, the excessiveness of God's mercy in forgiveness and healing is made manifest. This bottle will not be held back so it can be put on a shelf and admired. This precious substance will not and cannot be saved. It's going to be opened up. It will be offered and used at great price. It will be raised up and poured out for the life of the world, emptied to the last drop. And before that happens, Jesus will gather his friends together one last time at another banquet around another supper table with most of the same people present, and he'll tie a towel around his waist and wash his disciples' feet. Then he'll give him a Give them a new commandment to love one another as I have loved you. At least one of the disciples will argue with him, while others will wonder if he's lost his mind. But a few will watch him working on their feet and remember Mary working on Jesus' feet, the prophet Mary, who knew how to respond to Jesus without being told, the one who acted out his last new commandment before he even said it. Remembering her might help them leave him alone while he finishes all that he needs to do to bring salvation to the world. So at home in in Bethany, the storm clouds are still piling up against the door, When Mary gives the forecast, the days ahead will be bad, very bad. But that's no reason for Jesus' friends to lock their hearts or to run away. Whatever they need, the message is today, there will be enough to go around. Whatever they spend, there will be plenty left over. There is no reason to fear running out of anything, of mercy, of grace, of forgiveness, of nard, of life itself. For where God is concerned, there is always more than we can ask or even imagine. Beautiful gifts to us from our lavish God. Amen.